Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. I mean, I've spent most of my career only with self-imposed deadlines, and it's the best skill to the extent that we're here today talking to pass on any frickin' wisdom. Learn to learn to set yourself a deadline and be brutal on yourself. Because not because, you know, not because of like, I'm going to achieve and just because it makes you do your best work. Two amazing guests, Tim Minchin and Helen Bowden, are in conversation with Caroline Gross, AFTER's senior lecturer in screenwriting, to discuss the creation of the series Upright. Tim, of course, is an Australian comedian, actor, writer, musician, composer, lyricist and director. Best known for his comedy and stand-up shows, which have played to sell-out audiences around the world, as well as the Edinburgh and Melbourne Fringe Festivals. He is an award-winning composer and lyricist for the theatre, with shows on Broadway and London's West End, including Groundhog Day and Matilda the Musical. He has won two Olivia Awards, a Tony Award and been Grammy Award nominated. As an actor, Minchin played the role of rock star Atticus Fetch on Showtime's Californication, and he appeared in The Secret River and Squinters, amongst many other roles. Helen is one of Australia's most prolific and highly awarded drama producers. Helen has produced highly acclaimed shows including The Slap, Soft Fruits, Devil's Playground and Lambs of God, awarded last year for an actor for Best Miniseries. She is currently the managing director of Lingo Pictures. I really wanted to start with the origins of the project. So I guess for both Helen and Tim, Helen, how did the project start out? I'm really curious to know what you optioned in the beginning and when Tim came on board and and what brought you to the project, Tim? So Chris Taylor, who's one part of the Chaser uh, group, uh, approached Jason and I with a very slender proposal, really, about a man, an upright piano, and crossing the desert uh, from Sydney to Perth. And something about it just appealed to to Jason and me a great deal, the idea of the upright piano in the desert and the question of, you know, what is it doing there and who is the guy? Anyway, it it was a fairly... um, pretty much of a sketch of an idea, I think you could say, that Chris had. But uh, it was one of those things where you thought you could see the poster. And Jason and I um, enjoyed it and, you know, thought that it had potential. But I guess straight away, uh, Jason's thought was, this is this is a good idea, but it could be a really good idea if Tim Minchin wanted to do it. So it, we really did set out to try and attract Tim from the beginning. So we optioned the idea from Chris Taylor and then got a small group of people around him to start fleshing out the idea and 
you know, teasing it out into something more interesting, more complicated, more sophisticated, um, that we thought might, in some wonderful imaginary world, attract the attention of Tim. And if we could get Tim on board, we felt, you know, we could really go places with this idea. Um, and then Jason talked to Tim. What did you think, Tim? I guess um, it didn't seem like a very likely thing that I would want to do at, at the time that you got the idea from Chris, although now looking in hindsight, I'm so incredibly glad it worked out, but um, your assessment that I, I, wasn't, I wouldn't be very easy to get was correct because I was living in LA and I was, I think at about that time, my animated film I was directing it was just falling apart and I was doing you know, stupid Robin Hood remake movies in Budapest. And, um, but it, uh, I got involved partly because of uh, Lingo's, Helen and Jason's uh, very clever trap and partly because of serendipity because the trap part was that um, you, you, I, I'm not really a fan of um, piano shit. Like, you know, someone comes to me and is like, okay, Tim, I've got this idea. There's a guy and a piano. I go, la, 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 la. it seems a bit too obvious. And, you know, I spend my whole life trying not to just be that guy. But they had... Uh, got Kate Mulvaney and Leon Ford on board with Chris and I, I knew them all to varying degrees. Um, so when they first presented the idea to me in the top paragraph, they had those names and I've known Mulvers since I was a kid and, and Leon for 12 years. And so that, that immediately made it stand out. Um, but also, as it turned out, we were heading home to Australia and my uh, idea about what, moving to Australia should look like was not just that I, we should base ourselves there and I should spend my whole time flying away, but that I really wanted to base my, you know, make work there, uh, here. And so, I don't know, Michael, my manager, thought I would say no and I sort of immediately said yes. And I think, Helen, it, there was also a bit of serendipity in just the first uh, week of sitting around bringing me into the writer's room because I think I happened to be coming over to do some publicity of something else or something. Anyway, just, you know, it was meant to be. Everything just, yeah, yeah. happened in the, yeah. Right, in the right order. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was just a dream come true when Tim said, yes, I'm prepared to discuss it, I'm prepared to talk about it. And, yeah, the, the group of writers that we got together, we felt had the potential to do something much more interesting with the idea Kate Mulvaney and Leon Ford, um, along with with Chris and, of course, Tim once he joined that group, all performers, all funny, uh, all interested in very emotionally resonant stories. And that was, that was what we wanted to do more than anything. We didn't want to make something funny or obvious. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is really interesting about that series is how... Um, how appealing the characters are. And I also think that central relationship between Lucky and Meg is a really interesting one that we don't see very often on our screens, you know, like a surrogate father and daughter kind of relationship. I'm just wondering at what point that emerged. Was that, was that already in the piece, Tim, when you went into the writer's room or was it something that developed once you joined the project or how did that, that sort of central dynamic, at what point did that emerge? Yeah, Helen would be able to speak to this as well. But I, when I got there, um, there was no dialogue on pages. The pitch had developed into uh, that that he would 
early on at some point have a, a run-in with a this teenage girl and, and they had already Leon and Kate and Chris and and Lingo had already developed her as a kind of country kid um I find it hard to remember exactly what sort of person she was, but uh, she, she already existed. And the idea that I walked into was that he was taking his piano back, a family heirloom piano back to play at his mum's funeral. Mm-hmm. That it, there was a performance he wanted to do and it was meaningful and stuff. And it was it was in about that state when I waltzed in. And I felt strongly that um, playing at a, at a funeral. It, through a discussion, we realised that uh, having a body on a slab, a, a sort of date in the diary is not the most amazing ticking clock. Mm-hmm. And, and somewhere quite early on, um, we came up with this idea that she should be dying and that he belatedly has decided to get back. But that initiated in the way that, this is the thing I find most exciting about writing is you go, all right, we all agree. It's a good idea. There should be a piano in the desert, as Helen said, a bold image. And, you know, why would he be going to Perth? Okay, his mum's dead. Oh, no, she's dying. All right. So that's all good tentpole stuff. But what's what you can just sit with for weeks and not solve, but when you solve it, it's just the best feeling in the world, is the why. And, you know, why... why why is it dramatic that he's going back? Well, let's say he hasn't been back for years. Why wouldn't he have been back for years? And at some point I was in Broome, weirdly, and my um, movie had shut down and Groundhog Day closed on New York and I was really depressed. And I, um, the whole end of the show, the eight, episode eight, which I ended up writing, um, the kind of reason he'd been away and the family drama um, kind of just landed in my head and, uh, you know, obviously completely seeded by the discussions we'd had with everyone. I didn't make it up out of whole cloth. Um, But I think that's what I like most about Upright. And I should say I'm proud of Upright. I'm not going to do, like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the weaknesses of it because it's the first time I've ever been involved in making something that I'm, well, second time that I I can be... um, mitigated in going I think it was good um but uh uh I think the the next discussion after oh here's the why is how do we tell the audience the why and what I think is most interesting about Upright perhaps is the slowness with which we uh feed the audience the characters motives And, and it's in that way using flashback and conversation and hopefully never having it too expositional, we very slowly leak the information and don't actually let the audience into all the motives until episode eight. I think that's one of the things that was most beautifully successful about it because I think, you know, it starts out as feeling rather quite light and, you know, entertaining and then gradually you do understand that there's these incredible backstories that are existing for the characters that come out of it gradually and incrementally. And so... In the process of writing it, was that an early discovery or had you been in the writer's room for quite a while and, you know, once you, once you found that, did that become a spine that you structured your episodes around or how did you think about it as a story thing to unfold, that unfolding? I don't know. Um, 
it's hard to remember and I'm very aware of the sort of tendency to turn the development of these things into a simple narrative in itself. But I think it took, Helen, it took, like, after all our first drafts, I think the idea that they would both be keeping secrets from the outset and that we weren't going to state it all, we were not going to do the Disney model of, like, this is my want and this is my want and now we're going to watch them overcome the hurdles required. Um, I think we were... We were all committed uh, to not being slaves to any narrat- uh, narrative traditions that didn't suit us. There's some pretty serious frickin' writers in the room, you know, so having a Malvers and a Ford in the room and someone as deeply untraditional in his thinking as Chris is um, and someone as sort of belligerent as me, you, uh, and to have the support of Lingo who are not interested in making... Um, you know, Channel Nine serials. Uh, not there's anyone with that. I, I think we we were all committed to allowing ourselves to be non-traditional. But I think the there were a lot of discussions about how do you keep an audience watching two people whose motives you don't know. Like it, it is a really tough thing, and obviously we're not the first people to do it, but it is. You've got to believe in your writing and you've got to believe in your performances because all there really is at the end of episode one of Upright is a dude with a piano. We don't know why the dude's got a piano. We don't know what the piano is for. We've got a girl without any parents. We understand her dad's a bit dodgy in some way. And that's it. And, and just that, you know, she wants to go to... Kalgoorlie to see her mum and he's going to Perth and he's got a video of his mum who's sick. You know, it's just not, there's more questions than there are answers. So you just have to, you know, you're going into your first draft going, all right, then you better write it really fucking well because, you know, people are going to be bored because nothing's happened. You've just had a car accident, a shitty little car accident and gone to Mildura Medical Centre. Like, yeah. you know, how are you going to keep your audience? And you go, well, you're going to make it intriguing <laughs> well that's right and you it's a road trip and so you're encountering new people with each episode which on one hand is you know you're bringing in new characters but on the other hand you're not developing those stories the, the way you might in a relationship drama where everybody's in every episode and so again you know the strength of the writing and the performing for your two main characters is just so key and i would say you know, it, it was just such a sort of layered um, business of inspiration and work and reworking. And, you know, there were um, with four writers for the eight episodes and a script editor and, you know, Jason, who played a very big role in it as well. Um, a lot of people, clever people thinking and asking questions and making suggestions and gradually moving it towards that depth and sophistication that it needed to have to to sustain exactly what you're saying. Not yeah. much has happened at the end of episode one, but I'm going to keep watching. And we've yeah. certainly had a great response from people who just, you know, gobbled it up, really. 
So the writer's room is a space that I think a lot of the students are really interested in knowing a little bit more about. How, how did your writer's room function? It's at, it sounds like after the first draft, the, the ending and the backstory for Lucky came to you, Tim. Um, so did you go back and forth between episode writing and storylining and conversations? I remember Helen saying when we chatted beforehand that you would often start the day with a script read and, and then sort of move on to further work. So... How did you all kind of work together, I guess, to how did the room function? It, it was really democratic and actually incredibly joyous. I do, obviously, most of the great writers in the world are not actors, but um, uh, ha having performer writers, it, it does, that, that's as Helen said, you know, we spend a lot of time just reading because you don't have to book a bunch of actors to come in to try and hear how your words are going to sound, especially given that I was pre-cast. Um, if you want to know how Lucky's lines are going to sound, I can just bore you with them, you know. And, uh, look, I, I haven't been in many writing rooms, but I've been, well, I have, not, not for telly, but I've been in many collaborative rooms. And because we had a lot of relationships that pre-existed, we had a huge amount of fun, plenty of gags. It's very safe space, you know. I um, I, I think you have to be able to offend each other. Um, they work best when everyone's just rolling in the mud, you know. It's got to be like a sandpit. But also you have to be quite um, resilient because you need to be able to argue passionately for a belief you have about stuff. Um, and I think that was part of what was amazing about it is uh, I especially, and I've come a cropper uh, in... Um, you know, with heads of studios in LA, because I, I can't think sitting down and when I'm excited about something, I, I sort of be like, no, the thing is, mate, like this, and, and, you know, you have these Americans going, why is this enormous hairy man shouting at me, you know? Um, I, I had just spent four years in LA, like, upsetting people just by giving a shit, you know? Um, that's not quite a fair analysis, but, you know, they do get a bit shocked if you're like, no, I honestly... And, and they, they are also shocked by the fact that you seem to care more about the story than the, than the paycheck, um, which they find very confusing. But um, our whole writer's room was that. And, and certainly, actually, Lingo, uh, a fantastic production company, and that they, uh, they didn't ever give us an impression that there was a box they were trying to fill in their production schedule. And actually, for all their sins, Foxtel and Sky Atlantic were both amazing as well. It was just... Nothing matters more than making a good story. And that's what makes good writer rooms is you have to believe that your fellow writers only care about the story. And that means putting ego away and it means getting upset and, you know, but mostly we just pissed ourselves laughing, which is good. They did. I was very jealous because the laughter kept, you know, coming out into the yeah. main lingo office in waves and yeah. just was very, very joyous, which was... Helen would come and knock on the door and go, hey, what's funny, guys? And we go, go away, Helen. You're not welcome here, big boss. <laughs> Did you find working in episodic and, and some of the uh, structural requirements of, you know, having self-contained episodes but still keeping the story going... Was that different or was that, you know, did you find that your previous writing experience that you had had across multiple genres was um, completely equipped you for that situation or was, is this, was this your first episodic experience of writing? Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, it's really my first script work, which doesn't quite <laughs> tell the full story because I've I was constantly rewriting the movie, the the animated film over a four year period because animated films just keep getting rewritten forever. Um, so, and that script actually got greenlit after I'd done my pass and. I, I've written bits of stuff forever, but um, yeah, absolutely. The first time I started with a with a blank uh, a final draft document, I had to learn the software, and um, I really, really like learning new stuff. Uh, I think I'm a reasonably quick study, partly because I love it so much. I'm like, oh yeah, tell me more about. That. And um, I also think. I think people don't understand sometimes what uh, musical theatre is and what the job of writing songs for musical theatre is. I think people think someone comes up with a script and a bunch of song titles and they palm it off to someone, but actually the job of writing musical theatre is is looking at a story and deciding who's going to sing what when. I always talk about who sings what when, you know. And it's incredibly disciplined as a form musical theater that it's a two-act structure but you you have to map it out like it's a, a physics equation you know so the first song's going to be a chorus number the second one's going to be the protagonist telling us what they want and the third one we need to hear from the antagonist maybe i don't know i don't know what the rules are but you certainly have to be like and that 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 i want song is a ballad so we'll need to get their energy up so that one should be a this and we want to be able to dance with that one. We haven't heard from the chorus for a while and there's endless things that go into it. And, and I think that's, I don't know, Helen, I don't I know if you remember me sort of making any faux pas and not really understanding the form. I, I certainly had to be told that they had to be 26 minutes. Like I was like, oh, fuck it, you know? It's, well, it's just, it's all streaming these days. Like just, maybe it'll be 47 minutes. Maybe episode two will be... I was belligerent about that all the way through to edit. I was like, I don't want to be boxed in, man. But um, perhaps one of the things I learned, and Helen, you definitely had to gently talk me around to this or slightly just sort of ignore me, is that how beneficial um, time constraints are to story. Yeah. How That's my experience. I'm sure there's lots of experience. And you told me that and I didn't believe context, you because I'm like, right. okay. <laughs> but yeah, over a long time, the discipline of, of making things to length um, usually results in the best project, you know, best product. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'll have an experience where somebody produces episodes that are of varying lengths and it's perfect as it is. Yeah. And that is certainly possible in a streaming environment. But one of the things about the way we make TV, the discipline of it is actually, I find it really thrilling, you know, yeah. the whole thing of... We, we sell the show, so we, you know, after we got Tim's involvement, we then, you know, pitched it to Foxtel and Tim pitched it himself to Foxtel and pitched it to Sky Atlantic and they agreed to co-commission. Then you've got a whole lot of discipline that comes with those two commissioners. You know, they have, they're making something for an audience and they're making it in a time frame. And, you know, they can vary that a bit if they really have to and I'm sure COVID has proven that people have to you know vary their their delivery times but basically that's what they want to happen and I find it really fun you just get going and yeah. one way or another you just have to make it happen and decisions have to you know. And one of the features of this show 
from the very beginning uh, because of my various um, other jobs is that when I spoke to Helen and Jason at the very outset, I said, I really want to do this, but beyond 2017 or whatever, 2018, I'm, I'm out, you know, like, mm. like I, I need to know we're going to get it done. It can't drift on. And that was partly because my experience of LA where it's like, we're going to make an animated film. It's going to take three years by which we mean four, but maybe six, you know, it's like, I was just, I, I was committed to never doing that again, to never being sucked into a project that didn't have an end point. And, and actually, uh, Lingo from conception to end of filming was uh, only a little over a year, well, not conception, but from really getting going. And that was, it was quick, right, Helen? I mean, it- really quick. It was really quick. It was fantastic. It was and, enough, uh, we had it. We had enough time to do everything, and we had enough time to shoot it, and you know enough time to do great post with Deb Pitt, our editor, but yeah. not not a moment longer. It was yeah. exactly tight to to, to get. We ended up having a little bit of luxury in edit because of the shifting schedule, which was fantastic. But yeah. honestly, you know, I said in the writers' room, the most important thing is that you all, you know, the writers and the producers and the commissioners all care about telling a good story first and foremost. And the other thing is a ticking clock on your ticking clock. You know, you you need to know that there's an end in sight. Nothing gets you working like a deadline. I just think that's a real problem in the arts and maybe even more of a problem in a COVID world and might be in a post-COVID world. But I hear so many people going, oh, I don't know, like, I mean, I've spent most of my career only with self-imposed deadlines and it's the best skill to the extent that we're here today talking to pass on any frickin' wisdom. (laughs) Learn to to set yourself a deadline and be brutal on yourself because not because, you know, not because of like, I'm going to achieve and just because it makes you do your best work. It it really does. Mm. And and that's a good metaphor for the, the... the episode length to come back to the original question. I mean, you the forces you put on things, time, episode length, you know, even uh, the world you create, putting limits on the world uh, or on the number of characters or all those things make you do good work. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, I mean, it certainly feels like quite a simple, it, it feels a simple show in some ways and yet it has a massive kind of emotional complexity as it evolves. And I think I think partly because of some of those parameters, it feels like the the intensity was kind of exploited in all in all the best ways. So I think it's a really nice way of thinking about that particular series. I just wanted to touch on the concept of casting the writer's room. We often talk about bringing different sort of um, skills and experience into the writer's room to kind of be able to develop different aspects of the series. Do you want to speak a little bit to that notion? Yeah, look, it's a really important part of the producer's job is to cast the writer's room effectively and, you know, uh, you need to put a lot of thought into it and talk to to the writers, talk, you know, get them to look at the material that you've got, whether it's a book or an idea, hear their thoughts and so on and then go from there. Obviously, we're trying to get diversity, so we're trying to get, you know, more women because everything's male-dominated, trying to get people of colour, trying to get people from different, you know, sort of 
ways of thinking, different ways of thinking. I mean, we did cast the upright room with Tim in mind, thinking, you know, if we got these writers and they started doing something beautiful, he might say yes in our dreams. Um, I mean, we really did think it was a most unlikely thing, but we were prepared to give it a good, good red hot go. And I think that's part of it as well. You just got to have the courage of your convictions and you, you know, you never know, you can get lucky. And we certainly did. Um, but yes, yeah, so we, you know, so you're trying to get that mixture of, of people in the writing room who can, you know, listen, who can fight their corner when they need to. It's a very complex shifting thing because you can spend all day on one, going down one track and then at the end of it think, oh no, that doesn't work. Or by the next morning think, oh, that doesn't work. And so that sort of emotional, you know, ebb and flow of it is really important as well, that there are people in the room who will come back, you know, when everybody's feeling really downhearted and say, but I had another really great idea and just, you know, give me a go. Um, so that's part of it. I, we had uh, a woman called Nikki Aiken, who we were very, very lucky to, who just arrived into the lingo office, really. So she had um, graduated from Canberra University, where she was taught by a screenwriter called Felicity Packard, who has written a lot of Underbelly, and in her spare time teaches at the University of Canberra. And Nikki was one of her students. So she got Nikki uh, a job as a junior at screen time on the underbelly franchise so nikki was doing um you know research uh taking notes just doing every sort of dog's body job through the writing uh in the writing thing writing the extra dialogue a bit of script coordinating and that sort of thing and then uh graduated to writing and had written i think an episode of Anzac Girls and so on. And uh, then she decided, you know, she's an ambitious woman and she decided she wanted to learn about producing with the view to becoming a writer producer. And so she applied for and got a sort of fellowship that's run by Create New South Wales, which involves spending two months at Create New South Wales, learning about finance plans, working alongside the investment managers. And then um, they they pay for a month in a production company and they rang us and asked us if we were wanted Nikki and you know we want any free labor we can get and she came and worked on everything that we had so she worked on on the ropes she was with me while I was doing the I let her be in the room for all the financing of upright so I'd be speaking to London you know, at night and she would be part of those phone calls and hear how those negotiations went and how we put all the pieces <coughs> For the finance and then you know we were just very fond of her so she came into the room didn't she tim became part of the yeah, room she's so good yeah. and in the and in the end the, the amazing thing about nikki is that i was quite inexperienced with telly but because i the way my career works i i tend not to have lots of jobs on because i've always got matilda ticking over and stuff and i tend to just go Rrr. and because leon and kate were Kate was writing Sydney Theatre, huge Sydney Theatre company, Harp in the South, and Leon had projects, and his um, partner Alice was flying to LA, and they got really, really busy, and I ended up really um, taking the wheel a bit more than perhaps people expected, and I always had Nikki, because in the end I had to make some sort of, I, I kind of took it upon myself maybe to, to make some quite big calls because I've really felt the weight of this show because in the end, the finances and stuff are, are attached to it. 
because it's a great idea and a great production company, but after that it's probably um, partly to do with this sort of um, expectation that I would my tone would be in the piece. And I would not have had the courage to kind of grab onto the tone as much if Nikki, if I didn't have this person with actual training going, am I mad? Don't, don't you think? And she'd go, and she was, she would firstly very, very often say, no, you're not mad. We're on the right track. But when it mattered, she'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you need to worry about that. And she was a right. very smart, smart woman. Amazing. And that's a, a great moment. I'm going um, to maybe open it out to a, a larger conversation. Will, Will Lane, will you ask your question? Are you here? Yes. Hello. Hi, Tim and Helen. Um, thank you. Hi, Will. I'm changing my chair. <laughs> nice chair. I've noticed through pretty much every scene in Upright, um, and Tim, I'm a massive musical fan, um, so they hold a special place in my heart, that there's lots of brilliant moments where theme is just distilled into a single moment. So like a song or a line of dialogue, um, like when I grow up from Matilda, or it's in a lot of Upright. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about theme and how you go about integrating like a massive idea into your story so that it creates such an emotionally resonant moment for a viewer. It's a really good and really huge question that I would probably wind around and be boring about for about an hour. But I, as Helen said, that this stuff is the, the work, you know, the kind of joyous building a house with matchsticks sort of work. And, and I, I remember when I was at uni, like analyzing texts and we'd all sit there and go, you know, the poet is using, this is a metaphor for that. In my head, I was like, no, fucking not. We're just imposing our, you know, university analysis on it and we're seeing metaphors whether... I realise now, if those writers are anything like us, there's nothing in Upright that's an accident. Like, nothing. In the very first episode, Lucky gets a bit pissed and takes his anti-anxiety meds and he's, just before he steals Meg's car, he's playing a... Um, little theme that just sounds like his anxiety. Gang, 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 gang. And it's actually what he plays over the top of, <laughs> this is all spoilers, but over the top of his uh, biological daughter's theme. And we realise that later that the video is watching of his mum. He's not really watching it over and over again because of his mum, but because of the music in the background. And if you watch Upright more than once, you realise that, from the very, very start, all his question is, how do I become a harmony over the top of my daughter, metaphorically? Like, in the very first episode, he's playing this thing, hearing in his head a line that will sit musically over the Pachabellian ballad that, that, that Billy's written. And what's fun about it is it's a ninth. So it's not, he, he, he doesn't see himself as being able to sit happily as a major third above his daughter's life. He knows it's going to be tense, but he knows it can be beautiful. And so when they sit there on the lawn at the end, none, so none of this shit fucking matters to anyone except maybe Will. But it matters deeply to me that music works as a metaphor for, for lucky the only way he can imagine being able to connect with his daughter is on a sort of musical plane, which is why giving the piano to her is like giving him her his heart. Yeah. And, and, and this stuff matters to someone who analyzes the text for their English 100 class in three years. But more than that, it gives you, um, 
to, to try and get to your question, well, it, 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 I reckon you should be really freaking ambitious with how you seed your themes because it gives you uh, an answer every time there's a question. How, how would he act? What, what, what does he say now? And it's, it's why bad telly is bad because everyone's like, ah, well, we want him to go that way. So someone should say, let's go that way. And no one's, it's not based on any, you haven't done the backstory, you know. And, and, and then the, the B side to all this, to the really subtle wanky seeding of stuff, is going, and this is where people like Helen and Nikki and commissioners lean on people like me because I get all wanked out uh, um, in, in my subtext and stuff. And someone will go, yeah, I know you think it's there, but it's not there. No one said it, so you need to say it. And, and so how you do your when, you, when I grow up moment, it, those moments are... I think from my level of zero expertise is, is it's just about the who sings what when in a musical, but the same theory, like when do you go douche and have you earned the right to go douche? Have you learnt, earned your right to go, there it is, to just say, I love you. I love you is the best line in the world if you've, if the audience is like, just say I love you. And it's the shittest line if you're trying to say to the audience, oh, he loves her, and we're trying to tell you that by having him say it, you know. <laughs> so you've got to put all your stuff in. But the, the question of how do you have your big moments of didactic, you know, neon light, this is the moment, that's a matter of taste. And I think it's all about making sure you build your scaffold around it in a way the audience might not even be aware Thank you so much. That's awesome. Great, great question, Will. Yeah, really good. Definitely my favourite thing to talk about. So that was a very disciplined answer by me. <laughs> it was a wonderful answer. Beautiful. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, Charles. When you get so many projects coming across your desk, what's your evaluation and project selection sort of methodology? How do you go about that? Well, I'll talk a bit about lingo. Um, we're very small, so it's just... Um, Jason and myself, our, our development executive, Donna Chang, and Tess Novak, who runs the, the company for us. Um, so, first of all, what am I interested in and what do I like? And Jason and I both both have to like something before we proceed with it. If one of us really doesn't like it, then we usually just put it to one side. Fortunately, we both like a lot of things and are very interested in a lot of things. We're both very curious about everything in the world. For us, a very big part of it is what can we sell? You know, we know our customers and, you know, while, while the world, particularly at the moment, is full of a lot of customers with a lot of um, streamers and so on, our relationships are with the Australian commissioners at ABC, SBS, 7, 9, 10, Foxtel. Uh, and that is the most likely place for us to be able to get a project to happen. You know, if you want to get into the Netflix world, you just have to look at how many things they've actually made in Australia that are Australian, and the answer is one. So, you know, it, you're dreaming, really. You're very much putting yourself... It's not that you can't do it, but you're putting yourself up in competition 
with the US and the UK and so on. We're working all the time to make those relationships and strengthen those relationships so that we can start sending them projects with a chance of success. But, you know, we've got very strong relationships, both Jason and me, with the people, you know, that we have worked with already and delivered successful programs to. So there are lots of wonderful ideas, but if we can't find a home for it, we say no very quickly. Writers, and probably even earlier in that equation is the right, you know, are the writers, who are the writers and can they execute it? You know, there are lots of good ideas, but execution is everything. And from my long experience, what is, what is quite challenging is that you can get inexperienced writers with very good ideas who are very clever. It will take you as a producer about 10 times as much work. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It will take about 10 times as much work to get the scripts to where they need to be compared with a much more experienced person. So that's a difficult equation. It's probably difficult for everybody to hear. Um, but, but it's the reality. It doesn't mean that we would never take an idea with an inexperienced writer. Of course we would, but that's part of what we are thinking about when we take that idea on. Um, so we're very committed to, you know, bringing people through, training people up, the whole story with Nikki. We've, you know, every project that we've worked on, every project I worked on when I was at Matchbox, we were always looking for new people to bring through. You know, you're very conscious of people have got to have a, have a chance. We're never going to have an interesting industry if we don't make sure that we're bringing in new voices, different voices, you know, clever people, you know, people with interesting politics, all of that sort of thing through, through the system uh, in training positions, joining writers teams as juniors and so on. Yeah. I mean, I should say it's a fantastic time to be writing. It's a fantastic time to be coming into the industry. And I've been in it a long time and I've seen, you know, lots of ups and downs. Um, but at this point in time where people are watching so much wonderful television, wonderful films and wonderful yeah. television, you know, never in my life has it been a situation where the things that, you know, really interest you. You can just come up with a great idea or find a great book and, you know, people say, yeah, let's do that. You know, that's, that's what I feel like. A lot of my, you know, last 10 years has been reading something, meeting a writer, meeting a performer and thinking, oh, I love that. I'm really interested in that. <laughs> Gathering some more people around it and taking it and managing to persuade people to say, yes, we'll give you the money and then getting to make it. So, you know, you should feel very excited about the chances that are out there. It's, it will never not be very, very challenging, very competitive, very difficult, but it's a world in which a lot of exciting projects are getting made. Thank you, Charles. Great question. Um, Grace, will you ask your question? Um, I had a quick question for you, Tim about um, if you've found your ability to write songs influential in your ability to write and develop television and what's the, the parallels there? I guess that's a little bit related. I mean, in, in a very real way, it's related to Will's question, which is, um, I sort of, I want to use the word anthemic, like I really like art that um, doesn't condescend to me, you know, isn't like my audience is a moron. I'm going to tell them what to think. 
but I'm also quite mainstream as it turns out to my constant surprise um, in that I, I'm disinterested in uh, trapping an audience into my own formal experiment. You know, I, I, I want to make people laugh and cry and I want them to be really entertained and come away feeling like they care deeply about the characters and what they went through. And I, I, I'm absolutely sure I get it wrong. Um, I, I guess that my, all my um, satirical songwriting and stuff um, is a slightly different craft. That's about clashing content and form, you know, saying fuck the motherfucker 150 times, but as a happy polka, you know. Um, what what um, my lyric writing in satire and in musical theatre has in common with something like script writing is that it's, um, and without any claim to success or failure, I basically would rather stick a poker in my eye than settle for a word that I don't think is right, basically. And I'm sure I fail all the time, but I, when I go see a musical and I can just tell the composer's like given up on a line, it just makes me so fucking angry. And, um, and I, I feel the same about the script. So you don't have to be obsessive or be a wanker. And, uh, and as I say, I might fail all the time, but don't stop if you don't think the line's right. Just keep, I just, it blows my mind that people stop when there's still a better version of it, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I'm a bit, um, I, I'm just, I'm so much, actually, I think Helen and I are quite, we've spent a bit of time together, quite similar cats, really. There's a sort of real love of the, you know, putting the glue on the matchstick and putting it in the thing to make the door so we can make our little matchstick house and going, that's not quite right, I'll take that matchstick off and give it a little, you know, like, I, 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 we're, we're not impatient with the, with the, uh, Nerdy yeah, absolutely. You've got to just absolutely love the process. I mean, I have a little phrase as a producer, which is a bit different, but which is run towards trouble. And it's the yes. same in, in scripts and things where you just, you know, you can think something's working and try to ignore the signs that it's not working. But really, you've got to, in the end, just go, okay, this is not working. What do we do, you know? And, and that's why... Be prepared to do that work. Be prepared to listen to yourself, be prepared to listen to others and be prepared to run towards it no matter how hard it's going to be to change it. And that's why it's so important and I'm so lucky because it's really hard. There's no way to do this. You have to kind of stumble on it. But that lesson, which is related to kill your babies, like get as quickly as you can to the inevitable place you, you hope you're not going to get to. Like, if you see trouble looming up ahead, exactly, that's such a good phrase. And I, I remember you saying that for the first time. You just cover the ground so that you can get on with fixing it as quickly as possible. And I am not like that. Because although I like picking away at stuff, once I've decided, you know, I've done a thing, it's like, don't tell me it's wrong, it's right, you know. And like with the episode five, it was 56 minutes in the first cut. And I had to go, I mean, it's fucking insane. I had to get half of it cut away. And I'm like, it's, it's brilliant. You'll have to call the network. It's 56 minutes. I am, I am not good, which is why I'm so lucky to find someone like Helen and Jason. And I've had, and, and in my musical theatre world, to find Matthew Watchers and I, which is people who 
who I respect so much and like so much that then when they say something that if I felt it wasn't coming from the right place, I'd be like, fuck off. But if you can find those people who you really respect, then they can say to you, you're not looking this problem in the eye. You're, and, and you go, damn it, bloody hell. If Helen thinks, I suppose I have to actually think about it. So that's the, you know, that's the, that's the, the greatest thing is finding producers and executives and commissioners who you believe care about the story because they'll hold you to account. Whereas when I was in LA, I was so suspicious of every freaking note. I'm like, ah, you're just, you don't know what you're talking about. I rejected an entire set of notes from Steven Spielberg one. Wow. It's a wonderful idea of um, how to navigate senses of trust, because actually what's the point of the, that, the note if there's no trust there? Yeah. Well, who do you, the greatest challenge of my last 15 years is figuring out who to listen to. And early on when I was just a comedian, it's like, what do I read the critics? And that almost destroyed my freaking brain because I was somewhere in between a genius and the biggest fraud on the planet, according to those assholes. You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.